Who is on the wrong side of history? You heard the phrase being on the wrong side of history? Well, who is on the wrong side of history? Our society's got a very clear message on that. Christians are on the wrong side of history. Especially if you believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Well, that isn't a subcategory within Christians. That's all Christians. Especially if you stick to what the Bible says about morality. That also shouldn't be a subcategory. That should be all Christians. You're on the wrong side of history. What do they mean by that? What they mean, believing that God made the world. Believing Jesus is the only way to God. Believing what the Bible says about morality, that might have been all right in 1840. But we've moved on since then. We've discovered a lot of new things. Knowledge has progressed. You are just clinging to a discredited, dying out tradition. History is progressing beyond Christianity. It's on its way out. That's our society's answer. Who is on the wrong side of history? Psalm 2 has a clear answer on that. Let's turn to Psalm 2 now. If you've got a Bible with you and you open it in the middle, you will probably be in Psalms. And if you turn to Psalm 2, that's the one we're on. And there are plenty of Bibles in the shelves at the back if you would like to take one. Psalm 2. We need this psalm. If you were here the last couple of weeks, you'll know we were in Psalm 1 for the last two weeks. And if you were here the last couple of weeks, I hope you might remember that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are like entrance pillars to the book of Psalms. God didn't put the Bible together in a random sort of way. These Psalms are there as like entrance pillars to take us into the book of Psalms and to set some of the themes. Well, how do we approach the book of Psalms? Don't we often do it very individualistically? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because there's so much comfort in the book of Psalms. There's so much about the inner life and about our emotions and our experiences. And so we tend to take them about all about me and how I'm feeling. But actually, there is also, there is that in the Psalms, I'm not trying to stop you using them that way. But there is also in the Psalms a lot about the world and the enemies of God. And if you take them just all about you and how you're feeling, you'd be a bit mystified with all this stuff about enemies. And there's a lot about God's big scale plan and especially about Jesus being the king. And when we see that and are less self-focused in how we use the Psalms, it actually helps us personally. I suppose it's a bit like I was saying this morning, when we put the focus on hallowed be your name, it actually makes us more joyful. It's a bit like that. When we see the big picture in the Psalms, it's not just about us as individuals, it's about a bigger plan. It helps us as individuals because we get troubled by the situation around us. We get troubled by the church looking so weak and God's enemies looking so strong. Well, I do, and I I don't for a moment believe I'm the only one here who does. It really does trouble me. It causes me doubts and discouragement. And I expect it does for many of you too. So we need Psalm 2's reassurance. Let's get help for ourselves by looking beyond ourselves 
by going through Psalm 2. Let's do that now. We're going to go through the psalm as a whole. I hope I'm going to manage to do it before the heat has got to you too much. But I'm going to try the psalm as a whole. Here we go. We first of all have the rebel's rage in verses 1 to 3. The rebel's rage. Verse 1, why do the nations conspire? Why do people fight God? Why does Jesus provoke such a reaction? And he does. Here's one example. From quite a few years ago, a student in communist Albania. He was a university student. And being a good student, he went to the library. And it's, this is going to mystify a bit current students. They had a card index system for finding the books. Okay, pre-computers. And he was looking through the card index system, and there was a card, and it said on it, the Bible, in Albanian, presumably. He said, I've heard of that book. And he took it to the librarian and said, I want to borrow this book. She looked at it, and, oh dear, a strange look crossed her face. No, no, you can't take that book out of the library. Hmm, that's a pity. Okay, not to worry, I'll read it in the library. No, you can't read it in the library. What? You've got a book and we can't even read it? And off he had to go. But he got interested. What's going on here? Why don't they want me to read this book? So he went back and looked again for the card. The card had gone. He thought, what is it about this book that they don't want me to read it? What is it about this book that they're so afraid of? So he managed to get hold of a Bible and he read it and he was converted. He thought, If the Bible's false, why do they fear it? If it's true, it's crazy to fight it. Truth is like the sun. You can block it out, which we might have wanted to do recently. But it doesn't go away, as we've been discovering the last few days. So, verse 1 says, why fight God? And verse 2 says, they're not just fighting God. They're also fighting the ruler he's appointed. That's what it means by his anointed one. Children anointing, it was even done in our queen's coronation. Pouring oil on her to show she's the queen. Anointed one means the one God had appointed as king. Back when Psalm 2 was written, this was David. But David nearly always in the Psalms represents Jesus. That's a principle we've seen the last two weeks. I'm not going to go over it again. Listen to the sermon from two weeks ago, or take it from me. David in the Psalms nearly always represents Jesus, and he certainly does here. And so the psalmist is surprised, verse 1, why? Why? It's obviously, look at the last word of Psalm, of verse 1, it's obviously vain. It's an empty, futile effort fighting God. So why do they do it? The answer is, verse 3. Here's why they do it. Verse 3. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The there is God and his appointed king. We don't want his chains. We don't want their fetters. Children, fetters are those iron things that would go around a slave or a prisoner's ankles and chain them up. Here, rebellion is dressed up as a liberation movement. We don't want to be restricted. We won't have him telling us what to do. We will be free to make our own decisions. It's very clear in our society. Doesn't this describe our society? We will write our own morality. That's what we're doing. 
we live in a very moralistic society. But it's a society that's decided its own morality. We won't have God's morality. He's a spoil sport. That's the message. We won't be bound by an ancient book. Come on, you're on the wrong side of history. But, but what I've described in a slightly derisive way, which we could enjoy deriding, but I hope you recognise it's not just out there. It's in here. It's in here for me and for you. It's not just Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer who want to rule. We've inherited it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is the attitude we inherited from them when they said, God's rules restrict us, let's throw them off. Now, if you're trusting Jesus, you've turned from that attitude and you've said, actually, his rules are good. Please, Jesus, restrain my sin. But don't you still find the dregs of that attitude in your heart? Yes, Jesus, restrain my sin when actually I'm finding it a habit I'd like to break, but not that sin, which I'm rather fond of. If you're not trusting Jesus, it might be because you haven't understood the gospel. It might be because you're not actually convinced that the Bible is true, but it's more likely to be you want to keep control not surrender to God and his anointed one. Verse 1 to 3 is the rebel's rage. Then we have the Lord responds. Verses 4 to 6, the Lord responds. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now this isn't like a soft teacher. Did you ever have a teacher at school who when someone does something naughty laughs because they just think that's quite amusing. They're not going to have much control, are they? Nor is it a hard-hearted tyrant who laughs because he's indifferent to sin and suffering. He's in a palace, doesn't touch him. No, this is a laugh of derision. This is the laugh of the elephant at the ant trying to hold it back. Can you try to picture that in your mind? Children, picture an ant trying to push an elephant. And then remember, the difference between an ant and an elephant is far smaller than the difference between the most powerful king and God. The Lord laughs because it's just like an ant trying to push an elephant. This is one of the reasons we read Acts 4. In Acts 4, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles conspired and they crucified the anointed one. The one this psalm is about, they killed him. That's the end, isn't it? Psalm 2, snuffed out. And God laughed. Because Acts 4 amazingly says, although they were wicked sinners, they were doing just what God planned. Same action, but two motives. They had a wicked motive, God had a good motive. He would planned it so his anointed one should rule and millions be saved by him. And then the Roman Empire, a century later, raged and threw Christians to the lions. And God laughed, not that he didn't care for his saints. Oh no, it's not that he's indifferent to their sufferings. But he laughed in this sense. He made his church grow phenomenally. Whatever Nero and the others did. So, here's a quote. I don't often read quotes because they, uh, they're rather hard to follow. But there was a Christian leader called Tertullian. And he said to the rulers who were threatening to kill him, Kill us! Torture us! Condemn us! Grind us to dust! 
the more you mow us down, the more we grow. And it happened. And today, today, it's not just hundreds of years ago, today, the governments of Iran and China have determined to stamp out Christianity. They won't have that religion in their country. And God laughed. And he's made the church grow in Iran and China probably more than any other place in the world. Do you know, there are more Christians than Communist Party members in China now. I think God's really laughing about that one. Now you might say, I can see all that. Yeah, that's wonderful to look back at that. But it's not just back, it's now in China and Iran. You might say, but what about when Islam swept across the Middle East and North Africa and wiped out the churches and it stayed that way for hundreds of years? What about in the UK where secularism rules and Christianity is pushed out of the public sphere and rebranded as unacceptable? Well, even in this, God laughs. Not that he doesn't care, but he has a plan. He has a plan and it's being fulfilled and it won't for a moment be held back. And and don't be mistaken about this. God's plan is not for the high point of his kingdom to be in the Roman Empire. Nor for the high point of his kingdom to be in the 16th century Reformation or the 19th century missionary movement or even in the 1950s and 1960s. And now it's just all fizzling out. No. God's plan is for his son to inherit the nations. And by the way, nations doesn't mean places like France, UK, USA. It means ethnic groups. It doesn't just mean, okay, if there's a Christian in Saudi Arabia, tick off that one. It means his plan is for every ethnic group to show the praise of his son. In fact, his plan is for the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Children been to the seaside yet this summer? How much sea was covered in water? Yeah. How much sea? Even in this weather, how much of the sea was dry? Go and have a dip and you find it's pretty wet stuff in all the sea. God's plan is for the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The high point is not in the past. This should so affect our attitude to all we do as a church and individuals. God's plan is for the nations to be the inheritance of his son. And it's going to happen. The best is not back at any point in history you might identify behind us. The Lord not only laughs, he does verse 5. Verse 5. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. How does God rebuke and terrify? What would you think if you heard a trumpet? Well, here in this side of town, you might think it's your neighbour having a practice, ready for a concert or something. Trumpet, that's music, isn't it? Classical music, maybe. But in the past, the trumpet meant a warning. There's an army attacking. And in Revelation 8 and 9, there are trumpets. That's what it calls troubles God brings on this world. They are his trumpets. They are effectively doing verse 5. They are God waking people up and saying there is judgment coming. And the little judgments you see now and the little troubles that worry people now 
are a trumpet saying God is not, has not got off the throne. And he's not a cuddly teddy bear. He's not tame. There is judgment coming. Wake up. Now, the trouble is, Revelation 9 says, instead of repenting, people curse God. How true it is. The trumpets that are supposed to say to them, wake up and take notice of God, people turn into arguments against God. But he's doing verse 5. And God's warnings are all to show verse 6. They're all to show this, verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this is the centerpiece and the key to the Psalms. The Hebrews loved things symmetrical. And many parts of the Old Testament are very symmetrical. And bang in the middle is the key to it all. This psalm isn't particularly symmetrical, but the key is here in the middle, verse 6. There is a king crowned by God and in place to represent him and to enforce his rule. Now, back at the start of the world, that was supposed to be Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve said, verse 3, they said, we're going to throw off God's chains, this spoil sport of a God. But God was unfazed. He had it planned. And he made David king of Israel. And Psalm 2 is first about him. But then David died and his kingdom split. And it was all downhill after his, well, from his son onwards. But God was unfazed. He had it all planned. Because David was just a shadow of Jesus who has been crowned and he has been installed in the heavenly Zion. So let's consider him further. Are you following? We've had the rebel's rage. That was verses one to three. We've had the Lord responds. That was verses four to six. And then we have through his representative ruler. That's verses seven to nine. Now, we get a change in verse 7. Who is speaking now from verse 7 onwards? Genuine question. Can someone help us out? Who is speaking now from verse 7 onwards? What was that, Mike? Well, no, not, not... I can see why you say that. We're going to come to that in a minute. It's not the Father at the beginning of verse 7. It's the king, the anointed one. He is speaking. But everything he says is quoting. Who is he quoting? God, that's right. So you're right, Mike. It is the father from the second half of verse 7 onwards. Because it is the anointed one and the second half of verse 7 and then verse 8 and verse 9. He's all quoting God, his father. That's what's going on in these verses. Now, what he says might get you a bit worried and a bit confused because he says in verse 7, my God has said to me, today I have become your father. And you might think, does that mean Jesus was once not the son of God? Maybe Jesus was an angel who God then chose and said, right, I'm going to make you my son. Or maybe Jesus was... A man who was so good that God said, right, I've selected him as my son. How could God say, today I've become your father? Wasn't God always his father? Well, we'd better think theologically. Please don't switch the off button. 
Because thinking theologically is not something to be scared of. In this case, it's going to mean thinking about Jesus. I hope that's good news to you. We're going to think about Jesus. And actually, it's not going to be very complicated. So let's ask some simple questions. God so loved the world that he gave what? His own, right. So, so he already was his son when he was given. In fact, he already was his son before he was given. And when the son was given, Jesus walked around Galilee and he was despised and unrecognized and weak. He just looked like an ordinary man and a particularly poor one. Was he the son of God then? Yes, yes he was. Have you got any evidence? Well, you could turn to John 5, where Jesus repeatedly calls God his father and himself the son. Or you could think of Jesus praying in John 17 about the glory he shared with the father as his son before the world even began. So Jesus always was the son, just as God always was the father. But let's turn to Acts 13 and see what's going on here in Acts 13. You could just listen if you want, or you could turn to Acts 13 and see. Ah, it quotes Psalm 2 in Acts 13. Verse 32, Acts 13, verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Quote Psalm 2. And when did it happen, according to that verse? According to verse 33, when did it happen? When God did what? Raised up Jesus. And what do you think is meant by raising up Jesus? If you look at verse 34, you get more than a clue. Because you can raise people up in all sorts of ways. But verse 34, okay, you're probably a bit too embarrassed to say because it's just so obvious it's there on the page. Verse 34, it means raising him from the dead. We could see the same thing if we turn to Romans 1, verse 4 where it says he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He already was the son of God. But by raising him from the grave to the throne, God was making the God-man, Jesus, the Psalm 2 king. He already was the son of God in his being, in his person, in his relationship with the Father. But now, being raised from the grave to the throne, the God-man is being made the Psalm 2 king. God was declaring that Jesus is his son who has a right, the right, to the throne. So verse 7, today I've become your father, is an impressive coronation declaration. There's nothing much more impressive than a coronation. This is an impressive coronation declaration. This very same Jesus who hung on the cross, he's God's son and heir. Children, that's heir spelt H-E-I-R, which means he has an inheritance. That's what an heir is, someone who inherits something. What does he inherit? Let's move on to verse 8. Verse 8. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The North Korean government says we won't have anything to do with Jesus here. Stamp it out. The Saudi Arabian government says you can't worship Jesus here. Not allowed. But it makes no difference to this. North Korea and Saudi Arabia belong to Jesus. From North Pole to South Pole, it's all his. And so Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses. Well, actually, he said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Can you see an overlap with verse 8? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He was using the very same phrases as Psalm 2, verse 8. All nations and the ends of the earth. Because he knew they were his. Because God had declared to him in Psalm 2, they are yours, my son. They all belong to you. All the nations and the ends of the earth all belong to you. And so Jesus says to his disciples, right, go and make them mine. You've got a part to play in Psalm 2 being fulfilled. The people of Central Asia who haven't heard this gospel, and there are still so many millions of them. The 900 million Hindus, who if they do know anything about Jesus, think he's just one of their many millions of ways to God. The people of Loughborough, including your neighbours and work colleagues, they all should be his. And so Psalm 2 sends us out with the gospel because the nations are his, verse 8 says, and any who don't bow to him will be smashed, verse 9 says. Psalm 2 should be a psalm to send us out with the gospel with a double motive. It all belongs to Jesus. And any who don't recognise that will be smashed. And I want to rescue them. The rebels rage, the Lord responds, through his representative ruler, fourthly and finally, who we need as our refuge. This is verse 10 to 12, who we need as our refuge. The next paragraph continues the theme, it is dangerous not to recognise Jesus as king. Verse 10, therefore you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Now, you might say this isn't to me, it's to kings and rulers. And I don't think we've got any kings or rulers here today, or or ever as far as I'm aware. But remember, Psalm 2 was first about David and the kings who rejected him. But it's really about the Christ and us. And since we've been the verse two people who've said we'll be in charge, we won't have that man to rule over us. We've all been that at some time. Are you still that person? So we are also the people spoken to in verse 10. Be wise. Be warned. And we're warned in verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you be be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Now, this isn't a bad temper tyrant, and he might have had a bad night's sleep, 
and you don't know what you're going to get when you go in to see him. It's not a bad-tempered tyrant, but nor is it a soft pushover that you can get away with ignoring. In a moment, you could be dead and meeting him. You know that, don't you? You face up to that, don't you? I said before, I once had a very solemn thing where I've been preaching in a church, not here. And on the way home, there's a little group of people at the roadside gathered around. What were they gathered around? Well, a bike had, had swerved in the road. A car had swerved to avoid the bike. And it had, hit over, it had knocked over a boy on his way home from church. And he was lying dead on the roadside. I'd just been preaching the gospel in a church. Not the same church that boy had been to. What a solemn thing that was. You can, you can be meeting Jesus in a moment. He could return and you'd be judged by him in a moment. You don't know when. We are glad that Jesus is a good shepherd and he carries the sheep in his arms and he is so tender. What a lovely picture in the Bible. But don't ignore that the Bible also pictures him as a warrior, verse 9 says, smashing his enemies as if they were pottery with an iron rod coming down on it. All you say, Old Testament. That's Old Testament, we've moved on. Don't like that nasty Old Testament stuff. Do you know the last book of the Bible quotes that verse? And it describes Jesus smashing his enemies, and it makes it more graphic. It says, and his robe is splattered in their blood. The New Testament doesn't water down the judgment of Christ. How can we be safe? How can we be safe when there's such a warrior who rules the world? Well, here's another reason we read Acts 4. What did Acts 4 say? Acts 4 said, Psalm 2 happened at the cross. Acts 4 said, at the cross, the start of Psalm 2 happened. The, the people raged and they said, we won't have this man to rule over us. We'll kill him and then he can't rule over us. But at the cross, the end of Psalm 2 also happened. What's the very last line of Psalm 2? The very last words. At the cross, the Son was being our refuge. He was being our refuge. Picture a grimy, blood-soaked execution ground. A place of cruelty. And it's raining, it's pouring. Not the rain that we would like to happen. But it's, down is pouring the wrath of God. Down is pouring the wrath of God. And it will pour down on you unless you take shelter. And it's no good saying, God, look at the good things I've done. Look how hard I've tried. No, no good saying that. And you look around. Where can you shelter from this wrath of God that's pouring down? There's nowhere except if you get as close as you can to that cross. There on that cross, there's a man hanging. And over him is a sign saying he's the king of the Jews. He's the Psalm 2 king. And you must shelter under him. The only place to shelter and all that wrath of God will pour down on him and you'll be sheltered if you're safely in him. To change the picture, let's have a completely different picture of the same thing. You've been an outlaw. 
an outlaw living as if Jesus isn't king, that you recognise, I can't keep running. I can't win against him. And you go and you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. And to your surprise, his hand is held out to you. And you kiss his hand as a sign of, I acknowledge you as king and I'm begging you for mercy. That's what real faith is. Do you know that? Real faith is not just, I in my head agree that these things I read in the Bible are true. Real faith is, I humbly surrender to the Jesus I need. That's the picture in verse 12. That's what it means, kiss the son lest he be angry. You go as an outlaw and you say, you are the king and I can't keep fighting. I kiss your hand and I beg for your mercy. Have I just described you? Have I just described you? Are you a refugee? Every Christian is a refugee. Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Well, we've gone through Psalm 2, the whole psalm, and my aim has been, if you aren't yet trusting Jesus, to drive you to take shelter in him. My aim has also been, if you are trusting Jesus, encouraging you, as we are surrounded by people who think, well, if there was a Jesus, some man with a load of myths about him in the past, all gone, just we can't really know the truth about him. Who is on the wrong side of history? Does it trouble you? It gets to me. Church looks so weak. The enemies look so sophisticated, clever and strong. Who is on the wrong side of history? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. And not those who take refuge in him. The ones on the wrong side of history are the ones resisting Jesus because God has made him king and given him the nations and they will belong to him. And the warrior king, he will smash all who hold out against him. But he's also the shepherd king who shelters all who humbly surrender to him. That's reason to do verse 11. Did you notice I, I jumped a verse because I wanted to end on it. I don't know if I should not take God's word in the order it comes, but I wanted to end on verse 11. That is reason to rejoice with trembling. Let's pray.